Welcome to Live in America's Town Hall, live constitutional conversations held here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. I'm Tanea Tauber, Director of Town Hall Programs. In a sold-out event at the National Constitution Center last week, Preet Bharara discussed his new book, Doing Justice, with NCC President Jeffrey Rosen. Preet is the former United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York and host of the podcast, Stay Tuned. He shared stories and lessons from his work as a federal prosecutor and offered his take on the aftermath of the Mueller report. He also gave his view on what it means to uphold the rule of law and do justice. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Constitution Center. I am Jeffrey Rosen, the president of this wonderful institution. And those of you who have been here before, and I see many friendly faces, know that we like to begin our programs at the Constitution Center by inspiring ourselves with our congressional charter. So those of you who know it can recite it along so that Preet can hear it as well. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people on a nonpartisan basis. Absolutely. Beautifully said. Right. Ladies and gentlemen, the fact that you're all here shows that you are hungry for constitutional learning and you are all fans of our extraordinarily distinguished guest, Preet Bharara. He served. You know well that he served as U.S. Attorney for the Southern District, which he calls the Sovereign District of New York, from 20, 2009 to 2017. He uh, is now a scholar in residence at the NYU School of Law. He is the host of a superb podcast of his own. Stay tuned with Preet. Please join me in welcoming Preet Bahara. Thank you. I also wrote a book. <laughs> you wrote a wonderful book, which I... Which we forced upon all of you. Uh, they will read it with as much pleasure, I know, as I did. And one thing that shines from this book is a remarkable optimism about the rule of law and the ability of reason rather than passion to prevail. And I want to begin with this very basic question, which is surprisingly hard to answer, but you answer it so well. What is the rule of law, and what it, does it mean to do justice? I guess you got to read the book. <laughs> so we'll take a brief recess. No, um, so, but first of all, it's, it's really an honor and a privilege to be here. I was telling Jeffrey before we came out that this is actually a place where I have brought my family for family vacation. Uh, and, and, and brought, yeah. Thank you. Um, and, and one of the most memorable times we came was when there was the Bruce Springsteen exhibit. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big, but we've come back twice since then uh, because I think everyone, including young children in the United States of America, should learn about the Constitution. So, so we love it here and have been back a number of times. So it's a tough thing. What is the rule of law? What is justice? And you might uh, infer from the title of the book 
doing justice that I don't think that it's a necessarily determinable thing, what is justice. And I think, to, I'll tell you what justice is not. Justice is not a particular outcome that you favor because of a political belief or a preconception or a prejudgment. And one of the reasons the book is called Doing Justice because it, it, it implicates a process. And so if you know what the outcome is supposed to be in advance of your conducting an inquiry, well, that's the very antithesis of justice. And whether you're a criminal investigator or you're a parent trying to figure out who stole a cookie out of the jar, or you're an investigator, uh, investigative reporter at a newspaper trying to figure out you know, what to expose, if you have prejudged it, if you haven't done the process, then you have undermined justice and you've undermined the rule of law. And, and the way I think about it and the way I talk about it in the preface to the book is you know, people will view an outcome as just if they think the process was fair and if they believe, secondly, just as important, and if they believe people who were involved in the process were fair-minded. So, so there's a couple of things you have to think about to achieve, I think, rule of law, which means, among other things, equal justice for everyone, no matter who you are, how powerful you are, how much money you have, who you're connected to, what the color of your skin is, what your sexual orientation is, all of those things. There's, there's an aspect of neutrality to it, and there's an aspect of principle to it, but the major reason I wrote the book is because there's another aspect, and that is the people. Uh, they have to be, as I said, fair-minded. You can have great laws. You can have great, a great constitution, and we have one. But you could easily have a great constitution and well-crafted laws and no justice if the people who are responsible for interpreting the laws, enforcing the laws, deciding how to exercise their discretion with respect to those laws are not good people and don't have good judgment and are biased uh, or are incompetent. You know, any one of a number of things can ruin the uh, you know, justice in a country or in an institution very easily. And so those are the kinds of things that I talk about and people need to be focused on to see that the rule of law is upheld and to see that justice is done. It's fascinating when you put it that way, there's a tension on the one hand, the rule of law requires fair perspective procedures that allow us to be guided by reason rather than passion. On the other hand, the whole thing can collapse if you have bad actors who don't have character. Tell us about, there's so many stories in this book, uh, the suspect in the Madrid bombing who was exonerated after being wrongly accused and how that took place. Yeah, no, so just as a preface, it is an interesting thing, right? If you study the Constitution or you study the, the, the legal system in this country and many other places, we like to say um, that we are a country of laws, not men. And, and we are, and that's really important. But we are also a country through, through which law is served or disserved through, through men and women. And so it matters. Uh, in one early chapter in the book, in the section called Inquiry, I talk about a case that I didn't oversee. Most of the cases I talk about are ones that I oversaw or that I dealt with personally. This is one where I had a tangential connection to because it almost became my case. But you, folks will remember perhaps in March of 2004, March 11, 2004, there was a, a series of 10 bombs that went off in Madrid, uh, on, planted on trains, and 191 people were killed, and thousands of people were injured. And it was the worst terrorist attack, I believe, on the continent since World War II. And of course, the Spanish National Police, they launch into action, try to figure out who had done these things. These were not suicide bombers. It was suspected that it was Islamic jihadist terrorism. And they happened upon a great piece of evidence. They found 
a blue bag of detonators of the bombs. And they did what you normally do. They tried to lift fingerprints from the bag and they found one fingerprint that I refer to in the chapter as, as latent fingerprint 17. They could not find a match for latent fingerprint 17. They sent it to the finest law enforcement agency in the world, whose initials are FBI. And at Quantico, they analyzed the fingerprint. And at the time they analyzed the fingerprint, which is important and, and connected to the spirit of your question, the, finger, the fingerprint experts had no idea that they would find a match or not, and they went through the databases, and the first fingerprint examiner found a match to a particular print that was in the database. The second fingerprint expert agreed with the match. A third expert at the FBI agreed with the match. And they were kind of perplexed because the match came back to a gentleman named Brandon Mayfield, who was a 30-something-year-old white lawyer living in Portland, Oregon. And they must have thought to themselves, well, that's kind of peculiar. What, what is, why is his fingerprint on the bag of detonators involved, you know, related to this horrible terrorist attack in Madrid? And they began to do some research into him. You know, other FBI agents, not the fingerprint examiners, but the other FBI agents began to do some research. And they learned some things about him uh, that made them, I think, feel better about the oddity of the connection. Among other things, they learned that Brandon Mayfield, white lawyer in Portland, Oregon, had converted to Islam. They also learned that he had married an Egyptian woman who was a Muslim. They also learned that in his legal practice, not as a criminal lawyer, but as a, in, in connection with a child custody issue, Brandon Mayfield, converted Muslim, married to a Muslim, had represented somebody who had been accused of material support of Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. Three strikes. Now, the interesting thing about this is, at the time, and so there were accusations that, because uh, he maintained his, his innocence at the point at which he became uh, someone who was brought into custody through a material witness warrant and held basically for, for a number of weeks in solitary confinement, 22 or 23 hours a day, and there were allegations of anti-Muslim bias, which, which maybe there's a point there, but as I pointed out in the book, at the time that the people made the fingerprint match, they had no idea the name of the person or the religion of the person. They just knew that it was a match. And the only problem with all of this was, as you might have gathered by the way I'm telling the story, they were incorrect. The match was not to Brandon Mayfield. As the Spanish National Police kept disputing the match and the, Americans, the American FBI agents kept saying, no, we're right, we're right, the Spanish National Police at some point came up with a match of their own because they expanded their, their, their field of, of, match, of, of comparisons, and they realized it matched a man by the name of Daoud. And it was a full-on match. And only when presented with that full-on match did the FBI agents and the FBI generally realize they had made a mistake. And they did a thing that you almost never do uh, or ever hear about. The FBI, obviously, they released Brandon Mayfield from custody. They apologized to him, and they paid him $2 million in compensation. You don't hear a lot of stories like that. And, and so why did that happen? It's very easy to say, well, people are biased, people are prejudiced, people are racist. But that's not quite what happened here. What happened here was a standard form of confirmation bias that you always have to be concerned about. You can have great rules, you can have great protocols, and the FBI does, and that didn't do the trick. Because as the Inspector General of the Department of Justice did an extensive inquiry and study and put out a, a very extensive report, found that one of the things that happened was they became so certain of their initial conclusions, which were not biased in the way that we think about, because they didn't know the identity of the person, but they confirmed 
all these things that they would have suspected about the person who might have engaged in that terrorist activity, and they never went back to question their first results. I'll tell you another astonishing thing about this story, lest you think FBI bad, FBI bad. The target, Brandon Mayfield, had a lawyer in the, in the matter uh, who very wisely said, you know, I would like an independent fingerprint examiner to look at the prints because my client insists he had nothing to do with this. And by the way, Brandon Mayfield was never charged with the crime. He was taken into custody under what was known as, it still is known as, a material witness warrant. And they could never charge him because they could never find any other evidence. There was no connectivity between his cell phone or any of his phones and Spain or any terrorists. They did FISA, everyone knows about FISA now because of Carter Page, but they did FISA searches uh, when nobody was home. They found uh, Spanish documents and thought, well, this might link him to Spain and the terrorist attack. It turned out to be his kid's homework, <laughs> which is funny now, but it was not, not so funny then. Uh, and they couldn't find any additional evidence. So, you know, what, what happened here? And, and it seems that what happened is, oh, I'm sorry, and, and, and the examiner, the, the independent examiner, uh, took a look at the prints, approved by the judge, not an FBI examiner, and you know what he concluded? It was a match to Brandon Mayfield. And the bizarre thing about this is, I asked the question in the chapter, were these people racist and or were they grossly incompetent? And the answer to both those questions is no. Obviously, they weren't anti-Muslim in the way you might think because they didn't know the identity when they made the determination. And they weren't grossly incompetent in the following sense. As the Inspector General report says, the match between uh, Brandon Mayfield and this print, Dawood's actual print on the bag, was not perfect, but it was really, really close. And it was not crazy that people compared, and I don't want to get into the technicalities of it, but it was not crazy from an objective perspective that they, they thought that the, that the prints matched. They should have gone, just should have been more rigorous and gone to, to more degrees of analysis. And they didn't do it. And the defense person didn't do it. And it just happened to be the case that these two random human beings in the world did have very closely resembling prints. And so the bottom line is, I've gone on for very long, is that sometimes it's easy to say, well, you can find the racist cop and you can find the bad person who plants evidence. And those are terrible things. And we should be really worried about them. But often miscarriages of justice happen because good people of good faith who are not awful and evil don't do their job as rigorously as they might and they deviate from best practices. And as I say in the book, when in criminal justice matters, when accountability is spread as thin as morning frost, it's very difficult to sometimes get the right result. And so uh, separate, separate from the importance of people being good and people being you know, unbiased in the way that we think about that, they also have to be scared of getting it wrong. They also have to be very rigorous because uh, good people in combination who depart from best practices can cause severe injustice to happen. It's an amazing story that so well encapsulates the possibility that good people can make unjust decisions. And what I took from that story and from each of the sections of the book was the central importance of time. You said people didn't take the time to really dig in and do their job. And you run through the stages of the criminal justice process, inquiry, accusation, judgment, and punishment, you end with the jury, which you say is a model for debate in civil society, because in a jury, people have to take the time to hear arguments on both sides, to weigh the evidence, and to deliberate. And at every stage, you need speed bumps 
that prevent hasty decisions. You say federal courts are not Twitter, and that's why it is so important to slow things down and take time. Tell us more about that very constitutional point. Well, there's a dilemma, right? Speed is your enemy. It's also your friend, right? It's like anything else. There's a lot, there's a lot in this book that I think is relevant to life because everything is a balance. People think you do one thing or you do the other thing. I, yeah. When a bad thing has happened, when a bomb has exploded or someone has been shot or some other harm has befallen innocent victims, speed is good. You want to catch the person who's still on the loose, who maybe will rape, will rape another child or kidnap another person or engage in more sex trafficking or murder someone else. So speed is not inherently bad. The problem is speed can also cause you to make mistakes. Speed can cause you to get the wrong person. Speed can cause you to overlook things. Speed can cause you to go with your hunch rather than what the evidence shows. So it's a constant balance between being, you know, being an accelerator and being a brake. And, and good prosecutors and good investigators know that you have to balance those, thing, those things out. And so on the other hand, uh, speed is also your, it can also be your, your enemy, as I said. Uh, in, in lots and lots of areas, uh, you have to figure out uh, you know, what it is that's important and what it is that's not, that's not important. I, I make a point about uh, making sure you don't make assumptions about who may have done something and who may not have done something. And there are stories here where, you know, and the obvious story that people are worried about is when you suspect someone of committing some crime for a bad reason. You, you jump to a conclusion about something uh, of guilt. But the opposite is also true. And there are a number of stories in which people walk a certain way, look a certain way, talk a certain way, have a certain kind of credential, and it, and it doesn't occur to folks that maybe they're a fraud. That's what Bernie Madoff did, and there are lesser versions of that that I talk about in the book, so I think you need to be careful um, about going too fast and also going too slow. You know, the other point that I think is often lost uh, is that investigations take time. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about how long the Mueller investigation was going on. In 22 months, people didn't know it was going to wrap up, but it wrapped up. It's not that long. And one of the reasons investigations take a long time and don't follow the, what people want, like the NASCAR folks who think you know, speed, speed, speed is really important, is that you don't know where you're going. And further to something you said earlier, you know, if, you, if you know in advance what the, the result is going to be, then, then that's not doing justice. And so sometimes you can wrap something up quickly and speed works. But other times you're going down a particular path and you get a new lead and one of two things can happen you stop dead in your tracks and you realize that the path you were going down is completely wrong, or it accelerates your drive towards finding a particular person accountable that was consistent with your initial hypothesis so long as you don't hold it too strongly. So speed is a good thing. Speed is also a bad thing. You mentioned the Mueller investigation. Everyone wants your thoughts on it. And I want to ask... It's over. It's over. There's nothing to talk about, and we can uh, just go home. But this question of the Attorney General's uh, determination that the president did not commit obstruction after uh, the special prosecutor declined to make a judgment on that. I want to know your thoughts on that on a bunch of levels. First, was the attorney general empowered by the statute or anyone else to make the decision on his own? And second, as you talk about in the book, obstruction cases are really tough. They turn on uh, mental states. News reports suggest that the reporter is going to lay out arguments on both sides of an obstruction case. 
would you as a prosecutor be able to make a judgment about obstruction that quickly in, in, in a weekend after reading the report? Or should, a, should the attorney general or other prosecutors have taken more time to make that judgment? So I haven't seen the report. And a, a lot, have you guys, these guys over here have seen the report because they're laughing. Um, and so a lot of these judgments that we're having in these armchair discussions and on television are not so well informed because we don't know. But so who cares? We'll speculate anyway. In, in, in Attorney General Barr's defense, he has said, well, they had some understanding some weeks earlier, so it wasn't just in the 46-hour period. Um, I don't know how much they knew and how much they were thinking about things, so, so maybe it was a little quick. Uh, I've been thinking about the way Bob Mueller went about this, and you know, in some ways, I think Bob Mueller and his team, and I know Bob Mueller fairly well and worked with him when he was FBI director, and I was the U.S. attorney, it's like any other case, and prosecutors who believe in the rule of law proceed thinking, if, I don't care if you're rich or famous or a big deal or not a big deal, you proceed with the case like you proceed with any other case. This case is different because it's a special counsel and at the center of it in some ways is the President of the United States and it's different ways that I'll describe in a moment. But I remember a couple of cases, and this is, this is relevant to your question, I remember a couple of cases that I've been thinking about the last couple of weeks a lot where my team, I had a team of prosecutors who were investigating a particular entity and individuals, who you would know, but I'm not going to tell you who they are. Sorry. And they wrote a memo, you know, something like the Mueller report on whether or not uh, it was advisable to charge these people. And I remember it was a 40 or 50 page memo and I took it home and I'm reading it. And they lay out in the way that I imagine the Mueller report does based on the signals we've gotten. It's very similar. And they lay out all the reasons why a charge is warranted. And we could charge the entity and these individuals with this, that, and the other. And then there's a section of about equal length that goes through the potential defenses. And they're also fairly well argued. And, I, and I'm dying to see what the recommendation is at the end of the memo, because I want to know, you know how they want to proceed. And then I, you know, then I can choose to overrule them, or I can choose to inquire further, or I could choose to go with the recommendation. And I get to the end, and there's no recommendation. It's sort of, it's sort of the feeling that a lot of you have when you hear about the Mueller report. I'm like, this is nonsense. And so we had a meeting when I came back to the office and I, and I gathered the team together and I said, well, where the hell is the recommendation? And so, you know, we, we thought, I've been thinking about this a lot in, 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 the, in the current context, so we thought it was really close. It's a really tough question. There are good reasons to say prosecute. There are good reasons to think that we wouldn't prevail and shouldn't prevail because there are these common sense defenses that they have. And it didn't happen a lot. I can think of this one time in particular, and maybe there's one other time, in a significant case where they really weren't sure. And in that case, we decided not to proceed with a charge because the view was uh, when you're going to think about bringing the criminal law to bear and with respect to individuals, your action may separate them from their liberty. If it's a close question, the benefit of the doubt goes to the target. And I think that that is right. So now you're sitting there thinking, well, how come? Well, what's going on with the Mueller case? And I, it sounds to me like the Mueller, Mueller himself, in an ordinary case, if it was a close question and he couldn't make a determination of criminality, that would be it, like it was in the case that I just described, and you walk away. It's not an ordinary case. It involves the President of the United States, and, there's, and it's not just a binary decision to charge or not charge. There's this other branch of government called the Congress that actually has in the Constitution Constitution Center, 
a, a provision and a mechanism by which, separate from criminal law, and in fact, exclu you know, exclusively, if you believe the Department of Justice guidance that you can't prosecute a president, it's the only way, if there's a high crime or misdemeanor or an abuse of power, that a sitting president can be held accountable. And my guess is, and this is the answer to your question, my guess is that, the, that Bob Mueller said, it's not an ordinary case, I'm gonna lay it out in the way my folks did for me. And then, you know what, it's for Congress to decide because this case is so important, there's, the stakes are so high, it is so fraught, the question is so close, I will lay it all out over, I'm imagining, you know, scores and scores and scores of pages, and then Congress should decide. So when you ask the question, did Bill Barr have a right to intercede and make a decision, I don't think that was Bob Mueller's intent. Nothing stops him from opining. I don't have any rule that says he can't say what he thinks alongside the Deputy Attorney General, but I think he took the ball from Bob Mueller in a way that was not intended and that does not have a lot of plausibility and does not have a lot of, I think, authoritativeness given among other things, he's the hand-picked attorney general for the president. And he wrote a memo without, he knew, without knowing any facts and without seeing the Mueller report that essentially said in no way, shape or form could the president be guilty of obstruction. So he can say what he wants, he can put whatever he wants in the four page summary. I don't find it persuasive, effective, plausible, right or good I now want to see what the actual report says. So soon we'll see what the report says. What should Congress do? I don't sure. know. <laughs> I don't know. It, it, it de I don't know. It depends. On, I mean, I don't mean to evade the question, but it depends on what the report says. It, re it really does. And I don't know how much of it Congress is going to look. I think Congress should be uh, very strong in asking to see a less redacted version than the public sees. You know, there's all this discussion, and as far as I can tell, uh, Bill Barr is not distinguishing between Congress, not distinguishing between Congress and the public on the one hand. He's also not distinguishing between, you know, garden variety rank and file members of Congress, and you know what people call the gang of eight, you know, the, the chair and ranking member of the intelligence committees, and the and the judiciary committees, who have the ability for good reason in a constitutional democracy, who have the ability to view classified information. You know, lots of things they get told that we don't get told, and. That's important. And so I think one of the things Congress should do until we have the full report is do whatever is necessary to get as much of it as possible. Let's imagine Congress has most of the report and let's imagine there are strong arguments for and against obstruction. This is obviously not a trick question. We're in open territory, but in order to uphold the rule of law, should Congress hold hearings and weigh the evidence itself and make a judgment about whether it rises to the level of a crime or impeachment or if it doesn't think so preliminarily, should it just forget the whole thing? So there, there, like all these things we talk about, there are legal considerations, there are constitutional considerations, and those overlap, and there are political considerations. So I'm not a politician and don't aspire to be. So when I think about it, putting aside what folks like Nancy Pelosi and other smart political types say about whether there'll be a backlash or it'll look like overreach or will hurt the 2020 election prospects of Democrats and is it gonna overshadow important you know, you know, kitchen issues like healthcare and taxes and employment and everything else, I don't know about that. My bias is in favor of getting the truth and understanding the evidence. And I think that if you're a member of Congress, uh, notwithstanding the political issues for or against, if you have a basis to make an inquiry 
a further inquiry if you have a, a catalog of bad conduct that has been set out by the special counsel where the sitting president of the United States, there's good cause to believe that he engaged in activity that, was a, that, that caused it to be a close question that he obstructed justice in a criminal way, then you should take a look at that and you should have hearings on it and you should call witnesses and you should let the public have access to that information slicing away the political side. I just think, I just think you, have a, you have a duty to do that. I mean, look, what Bob, at a minimum, Bob Mueller has, has said that there is sufficient evidence of obstruction by the sitting president that I can't say definitively he's not guilty of a crime. And we know that's significant because with respect to the first part of it, the conspiracy, you know, people call it, call it collusion, he, he made the decision. He said, on this thing, it's very clear. No evidence of a crime, not, not enough evidence to, to state forthrightly that there was a crime. On this other one, there's so much bad stuff that I can't say one way or the other that it's, it's a crime. It doesn't exonerate the president. I also find it remarkable and extraordinary that, that Mueller put into the document in a way that Bill Barr could not ignore and had to quote from in his own four-page summary, which he says is not a summary, but of course it is a summary, that it does not exonerate the president, sort of anticipating the rhetoric that would come out of the president's mouth, as it often does. That's a, that's a big deal. And then you have these reports that I don't know if I credit them or not uh, in the New York Times and the Washington Post, and I think NBC News has matched the story, that there are members of, uh, of the special counsel team who have said to associates that they think that the bar summary with respect to obstruction doesn't do justice to, you know, to how sort of significant their findings were. All of that makes me worry, and all of that makes me think, per your question, that you know, bold members of Congress should get to the bottom of it. You quote in your introduction an inspiring argument by Clarence Darrow, freedom comes from human beings rather than laws and institutions. Do you emphasize the, the need to educate citizens about freedom and the rule of law in order to preserve it? Uh, and, and on both of our podcasts, we respect the intelligence of listeners and assume that you are capable of weighing technical and complicated legal questions and of making up your own mind. So based on publicly available uh, evidence about for and against obstruction, obstruction is a tough thing to prove. You note in the book that generally the law doesn't punish thoughts, it punishes actions, but obstruction turns on thoughts. Make an argument to our to our friends about what the arguments on both sides might be and, and how you would go about weighing them. In front of everybody? Yeah, I think it'd be, I think it'd be very There's educative. a lot of people here. I don't know it'd if you noticed. It'd be very educative, and we're all, <laughs> we're all eager for your So I'm not going to do, do the whole mock. Look, let me answer it in this way um, as, a, as a prefatory point. What I worry about is that we don't do what you're just describing that people don't like Trump, and, and I don't like Trump, that's my personal point of view, I think there are a lot of problems. And you may like him. You may not like Hillary Clinton, or you may like Hillary Clinton. And with respect to both of those people who are each the standard bearers for their party running for president, and one became president, folks are very quick to seize on a piece of evidence, to seize on a story and say, well, that means it's obstruction, or that means there's a violation of law because of a particular email uh, protocol without thinking, well, what are the arguments against? Because there can be arguments against. So I'll give you an example. 
everyone watches the president fire Jim Comey. And a lot of people called me that day and said, well, this must be obstruction. Well, yeah, it may, it, depending on what other facts are going on, it may be one piece of evidence you could cite, and I presume it will be in the Mueller report, that suggests that there was an intent to interfere with the Russian investigation. And then, and then you have another thing that happens. Then the president goes, and he does an interview with Lester Holt at NBC, and he says, in my mind, was, was Russia. And then he says this crazy thing to the, to the Russian officials who come, is I got rid of the nut job, and the nut job he was referring to was Jim Comey. And you begin to build a narrative. But there can be a counter-narrative, too. And one of the reasons, and I don't know which, is, which is weighs more heavily, but I would imagine that on the one side of the ledger, you would have these facts and many others that we don't have the time to go into. But on the other side of the ledger, you might have, and people, whatever you think of Donald Trump, you need to be thoughtful about the evidence and the facts. On the other side of the ledger, it appears that the president asked Comey whether he was a target of the investigation. And depending on who and what you believe, Jim Comey, the FBI director, said in, in substance or in, or in part, you're not a target of the investigation. And the president said, well, I want you to say that. I want you to tell the public that I'm not a target of the investigation. Which is not a crazy thing for the president to ask, given his political position. And if, again, depending on what you believe, the FBI director refused to do that. And so if the reason to fire Jim Comey either was for that reason, because he wouldn't say the thing publicly that the president wanted him to say, that's not obstruction. Or if it's a mixed motive, if part of the reason was Russia, or part of the reason was he didn't you know, clear the president publicly and say he wasn't a target, but a side benefit would be, well, maybe that'll you know, have a problem, you know, that'll hurt the Russian investigation. You know, it sort of depends. So then you start to see, well, there's some bases for thinking it's not so clear. And then, by the way, the argument is, well, it didn't stop the investigation. And if you're thinking about it at all, maybe you don't think the president's thoughtful, and that would be your retort. But Jim Comey, Jim Comey says, well, I, I, you know, he has testimony where he says, you know, I didn't, I forgot what he said exactly, so don't quote me on this. But he, he has testimony where he said, I didn't think I was being directed to not pursue the Russia investigation, and I never was asked to do anything that I didn't want to do. And then it turns out that you don't, you don't stop investigations simply by firing the FBI director because they have lives of their own. And it, it, the point is, I'm not saying each of these things is hugely persuasive, but there are arguments that you can make on either side, which is why I'm, for the fourth time, I'm waiting with bated breath for the Mueller report because only those folks have taken the time and energy to evaluate all of these thoughts, all of these ideas. I'm really interested to see the litany of facts that they recite and arguments that they make for obstruction, a couple of which I just made, but then even more interested to see what the other side of the coin is because you know, people can very easily minimize, depending on your political preference and whether you do or do not like the president, you can minimize things that are in his favor and you can exaggerate things that are not in his favor and that's actually not great for us. Thank you for weighing the preliminary evidence so thoughtfully and that kind of deliberation is a model for the kind of reasoned dialogue that we're trying to encourage here and that you generally praise the criminal justice system for praising. People say, critics of the president say he is a threat to the rule of law. This is an existential threat to the rule of law. Um, it sounds like you do not think that uh, that's occurred. There's evidence of that in the Mueller report, although it may be a close case. What might the president do in the future that would pose an existential threat to the rule of law? I, I, think, I think he does pose some threat. You know, people ask these questions about how our institutions are doing, right? The Constitution 
envisions three branches of government. Uh, and then it refers to one private enterprise, the only private enterprise it refers to in the Constitution, in the First Amendment, right, the press, which is not a branch of government, the fourth estate. And with respect to most of those things, I say when asked a question that's broader than what you just asked, I think the courts are doing pretty well. You know, they have life tenure, and the president will from time to time, I think, undermine institutions by attacking judges by name. He said this week something about, let's get rid of the judges. Um, I'm not sure actually how you do that, but it was a thing that was said. But all the judges I know, you know, some of them are a little worried that if they have a matter that implicates a presidential policy or presidential uh, power or a member of the family or some other such thing, maybe they'll be tweeted at by name and they don't like that. But you know what? They have life tenure and they do what they do. I'm putting aside the issue of whether you think that the new people being appointed to the bench are right for the court or not, but I'm talking about the people who are already there. They basically go about their business because the framers are very smart and they gave them life tenure. As I often say, if you're a judge and you piss off the president, you remain a judge. If you're a U.S. attorney pisses off the president, then you get a podcast. So it's a very different outcome <laughs> from, from what happens. Well, it's an extremely good podcast. It's a, well, the, it's no life tenure, I'll tell you, I'll tell you that. So please, please tune in. And then, and then, look, and then Congress, I think, is a mixed bag. I think the press is still very robust. But the, the reason I'm worried about the rule of law is that, that, that the way in which we have conducted things in this country with the separation of politics from law enforcement is a matter of tradition. And it's a matter of norms. See, the sirens are going. Ha, they're coming Good for timing. You. Yes. Uh, and they're not, you know, it's not mandated by law or statute like life tenure is in the Constitution for judges. And so when you have these transgressions and you have the president, according to reports, saying to an FBI director, can you lay off Michael Flynn? Or saying to the attorney general, can we do something about Joe Arpaio? Or saying over and over again, I would like you know, people to unrecuse themselves, whether it's my successor in the Southern District, or you're talking about Jeff Sessions. So, so far, there have been good people in these spots who you know, maybe not have acted perfectly, but have stood up to those things and have not, I think, violated their oaths. But I don't know that you can rely on that in perpetuity, which is why one of the things that I'm that I'm involved with that I'm very proud of is, is along with Judge, uh, with former Governor Christy Ty Whitman of New Jersey, we chair a, you know, a democracy task force to talk about proposals we might make and some of which we have made to Congress to shore up some of these norms that I think we have always just assumed people were gonna follow, like disclosing your tax returns, like divesting your interests, like not hiring your son-in-law, uh, like you know, not giving security clearances to people when everyone says they shouldn't get a security clearance. These are things that the president has the power to do, you know, the authority to do, and maybe we need to shore some of those things up. Um, when you ask the question, I don't want to speculate or, or give anyone a roadmap as to the kinds of things that he might do that would further undermine the rule of law, but I, but I worry, and I'm saying this not as a, as a person who has uh, been employed by a Democrat, but I'm saying this as a, as a citizen, and I think Democrats and Republicans both might have this worry, when you have a person who uh, loves to praise people like Erdogan and Duterte and Putin and says things uh, in the heat of the moment, and maybe not even the heat of the moment, like let's get rid of the judges, or maybe we should change the libel laws, or the mainstream media is the enemy of the people. 
that tells me that he has a certain view. And maybe he's mouthing off, but if we did not have some of the protections we have in the Constitution and elsewhere, the question that I have and that worries me that's related to your question is if, if, he, if this president had his druthers and he didn't have you know, a, a democratic house and he didn't have the provision in the Constitution that says judges serve for life and didn't have the First Amendment, uh, what would he want to do? And I think he would want to do a lot of things that we would find worrisome and that would undermine the rule of law because he seems to have a penchant and for these people who do those things and don't have the same protections we have because Turkey is a different place and the Philippines is a different place and Russia is a different place. So I don't know the particular things he could do, but I think he has in his mind, at least in his fantasy life, plenty of things he could do. So far, I hear you saying the norms are under threat, but the Constitution has helped. But, yes, undoubtedly. Yes. But just to take it one step forward, tell us about the remaining investigations in the Southern District, what's publicly known, and is there anything the president might do in response to them that you think could, even given independent judges and the First Amendment and so forth, pose an existential threat to the rule of law? I, I guess, sure. But I think it'll be very, very difficult. And maybe I'm naive, although I've not really been called that too often. Oh, look, I didn't see that. Um, <laughs> it's a wonderful sight. Uh, now I feel very self, self-conscious. No, no, no. <laughs> am, I, am, I sitting, am I sitting all right? I, I, thought, I thought they couldn't see me in the back, and they can totally see. Uh, it is a very hard thing to unscramble an egg, right? It's a very hard thing when an investigation is proceeding, and it's in an independent office, and you have career people who are pursuing an investigation, whether it's with respect to campaign finance violations uh, spearheaded by Michael Cohen, or it's things related to the inaugural committee, or it's the Trump organization, and they're presenting evidence, and they're going to a grand jury, and they're on the verge of finding something. There are people who will make the argument, and who have made the argument, that the president can sort of do whatever he wants. When he finds out about it, he can call someone, and he used to call me, by the way, some people know, uh, and I didn't return the call, which is why I can be with you lovely people now. <laughs> Thank goodness. Or he could tell an attorney general, you know, shut down the Southern District. My hope would be that if that happened, all hell would break loose. And these other institutions, including the media and the courts and the Congress, that's largely been supine, would spring into action in a way that they haven't sprung into action so far. Maybe that's not true but I like to think it's true. It just, I think it would be a very, very difficult thing. It's one thing, I mean, remember, the president didn't, even though he sort of thought about it, he didn't do the thing for which he was known on that television show. He actually didn't fire Bob Mueller. And we know that he probably wanted to fire Bob Mueller. We know that he thought about firing Bob Mueller. We know, if you believe the reports, that he talked to Don McGahn about firing Bob Mueller, but he didn't fire Bob Mueller. And as big a deal as I would have been, I think it's even a bigger deal if you were to figure out a way to reach down into a local U.S. Attorney's Office ongoing investigation of him and people around him and to shut that down, that to me, that to me is a much bigger deal than Watergate and I don't think could stand. Would it be consistent with the Constitution? Does he have the power to do that? You know, th that, that's a good question. Um, he has the power... Here's the problem with, with that question, and no offense to you, because, no you're, because you're asking the question. No, but there, there are a lot of people who say, 
Well, he had the authority to fire Jim Comey. He had the authority to do this. He had the authority to do that. He had the authority to give these security clearances and fine. That's a pretty crappy argument for the merits of the decision. And I say this, I literally say this in the book. You know, any office holder, whether a U.S. attorney or a president or anyone else, or, or the, the editor-in-chief of a newspaper for that matter, you have a lot of authority and a lot of power. If you think it's okay to base every, to, to, to justify every decision on the ground that you legally have the authority to do it, if prosecutors did that and, and engaged in, exercised their discretion to the magnitude, it has this phrase that people use, you'll be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. If every prosecutor in every jurisdiction did that with every single person, every single case that came across their desk, I say this in the book, we would be living in a hellscape. And the fact that someone has the authority to do something is the beginning of the discussion, not the end of it. The president also, you, you can pick random you know, examples. The one I always use is the president is perfectly within his constitutional authority and legal power to fire everyone with an IQ over 80 in the government and to hire only incompetent people and to, or to hire only you know, people who he knows and to pop, you know, depending on how you view the nepotism rules, there are all sorts of ways he can come close. The president is within his constitutional power to nuke Canada. I don't think anybody would say that's a great idea. There's lots of things that a president can do that are within his lawful authority. We could come up with a hundred examples that are not only impeachable, but I think immediately impeachable. Um, <laughs> I'm uh, eager to continue asking my questions, but uh, there, there are so many great ones from the audience that I'm going to ask a few of them. Um, well, this is a, this is a ver the question I was gonna ask is, uh, here, here's, here, the question is, if by some miracle you were given the right to single-handedly amend the Constitution, what would you do? And I'll, I'll just add to that the gloss do you think the existing constitution will save the rule of law, or do you think it's necessary to amend in order to protect the rule of law? Um, well, there's one, there's, there's something in the constitution about how you can't run for president unless you're born in America. <laughs> and I may have, may have a view about that, not you know, for other people. Um, look, I, the, the const, look, you know, this, this, this statement that I quote from Clarence Darrow about how no matter what laws we pass, no matter what precautions we take, unless the people we meet are kindly and decent and human and liberty-loving, there is no liberty, and you quoted from part of it. But just uh, learn at hand. I think it's here. I think it's in this building somewhere. His concern that, you know, I, his worry that he stated in a speech, I think in 1945, that I used to mention to people in my office all the time, you know, I fear that we put our faith too much on courts and constitutions. So I know we're here in the National Constitution Center, but you have that, I think, in writing on a, on a wall somewhere. And so when you ask me the question, is the Constitution gonna save us? The Constitution helps, um, but it depends on who the people are who are you know, charged with interpreting the Constitution and abiding by the Constitution. Look, th there's this concern that people are, are talking about, and I, I think it's kind of outlandish, but at the end of his testimony, Michael Cohen said before a committee of Congress that he is worried, and take it for what it's worth, uh, that after the next election, if it doesn't go the way that the current president wants, maybe he won't leave office, and then you'll have a real constitutional crisis, and then the Constitution will matter, but what other people do will also matter. So I don't know that the Constitution needs to be amended. There are a couple of things that, with respect to our task force, we have talked about. I think there is a real question, depending on what the current president does, 
because uh, he, he, he seemed to be playing with the pardon power a little bit and then stopped. But I'm not sure that we have, should have such a wide overarching pardon power because I think there's a lot of abuse there and the potential for abuse there. Uh, but otherwise, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with the Constitution. I'm a little bit more worried about the people. By, by the people, I hear you saying the people around the president, not the American people. people around the president, the people who, the judges, prosecutors, members of Congress. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm concerned that when, that when bad things happen and when real threats get worse, and the alarm bells are supposed to sound louder, will, will people have courage and conviction that transcends party to do the right thing? And I'm not seeing a lot of evidence of that yet. This is... Because remember, you know, in 1974, mm -hmm. I was very young back then, <laughs> but I have read... <laughs> uh, it's nice to get laughter when you say you've read something. Yeah. Uh, and, and when you were young in 74. Yeah. It takes bipartisanship, not just to pass you know, an infrastructure bill or an immigration bill. It takes bipartisanship to, to make sure that the Constitution is vindicated. Those things matter, too. So th this is the crucial question. What's different between 1974 and now? There's more polarization. There is social media that allows uh, the people to make hasty decisions based on passion rather than reason. Identify other differences. And do you think that they are significant enough to pose a serious threat? I, I guess. I, mean, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not smart enough to understand all the parallels and, lacks of, and lack of parallels between 1974 and now. Look, the principal difference may be the conduct at issue you know, is not the same. And I'm going back to the thing that I've said a bunch of times. I'd like to see the Mueller report. Uh, you know, and it may be that we're so polarized now and everyone is so much in their own corner that you know, people don't change their minds. What had to happen, look, Nixon won in 72, right? Am I correct? 49 states, right? Did I get that right? Yeah, here I am. <laughs> uh, and he, so, Lots of people supported him. He had a lot of support. And people had to change their minds. And I don't know that people are in a position these days. You go to your corner and nobody changes their minds. And maybe that's fine and that's great and people shouldn't change their minds. But you know, when, when Donald Trump says a thing, this is maybe the most perspicacious thing he, he said. And it's a crazy thing to have said, but as every day goes by, it I think make, crystallizes this point that people are in their camp either pro or against, and they don't leave it. He said, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and I wouldn't lose a single vote. Well, that's a very sort of ostentatious way to say my supporters are my supporters. And it's not a crazy thing to say. You know, a, a polit you know, a, you know your average hard-hitting politician would love to be in that position. My supporters aren't going to leave me. And the opponents aren't going to ever be persuaded to his side if he changed his policies. So maybe that's what's different. There's, there's less mobility in people's thinking now. That's such an important point. That suggests that ultimately the success or failure of the rule of law will depend not just on the people in government, but on the American people. The learned hand quotation It always was, does. Learned hand is liberty lives in the hearts or minds of the people. When it dies there, no court can save it. So you're optimistic in the book about the rule of law and juries and broadly good people in the right places. But are you optimistic or not that the American people will ultimately insist on the upholding of the rule of law? I am. I'm not confident about everyone, but I'm confident about a lot of people. 
look, there's some bad things that happen and public voices matter. You know, if you were an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York or anywhere else, um, you see a lot of horrible things. You see the worst things that human beings have to offer. You see homicide, you see terrorism, you see rape, you see witness intimidation, you see sex trafficking, you see, you see people who steal other people's life savings. And you would think, what a miserable place to work. And it's not. It's the most beautiful place to work. For me, it was. Because you have all these people that notwithstanding all these terrible things that are happening, they, they came to work every day where they could have made more money elsewhere because they wanted to make things a little better. You know, they saw all these terrible things and they wanted to make their community a little safer. Um, and quality of life for folks, higher. And so in the midst of tragedy and bad things, I think there are lots of inspiring things that happen. One of the worst things that happened in our country in the last couple of years was what? The, the shooting at Parkland. But boy, when you start seeing the kids at Parkland, who inspired my own kids, who for the first time, I, I, have, I have kids, all of whom are now teenagers, who decided on their own, it wasn't at, at my wife's or my insistence, started to make posters and wanting to march about guns or about equal rights for women. Uh, terrible things can spawn, I think, courage and bravery and, and activism. And I think that that's good. And I think some of the things, you know, the, the separation at the border, a lot of people didn't like that. I was one of those people. It's one of the few things, and it's still not solved, and there are lots of problems, and people have not been reunited, but there was a policy that was intransigently held and pursued that was altered because people got very, very, very angry about it and spoke of their anger and marched because of their anger. And I think that the more that happens and the more people like you who care about the Constitution, who care who care about um, citizenship, the better we are. And I think lots and lots of people have been activated in a way that they haven't been before, and that gives me great hope. The, uh, this has to be the last question, unfortunately, uh, but I must ask it at the National Constitution Center. Learned Hand, George Washington, James Madison, all of them said that the way to preserve liberty in the hearts and minds of the people was through learning about the Constitution, by studying the science of government, by educating yourselves about the wise restraints that make us free. Tell us, based on your experience and all that you have witnessed, why specifically it is urgently important for Americans to learn about and study the Constitution. Boy, uh, it should be obvious to everyone why, why that is. Because people, you, you have to know your rights before you know how to fight for them, right? You have to know what the arguments are uh, that are constitutionally based if you're going to persuade other people to your side. Uh, you have to be well-versed in how democracy is supposed to function if you are going to have any authoritativeness over the kitchen table or at the cocktail party or at the barbecue when you're trying to convince your neighbor how they should vote and how they should care about things. Um, you need to know about these things so you can teach your children about these things. And you know, the other, so, so those are among, you know, three or four among a hundred reasons why you have to know these things. Not just know them, but understand why they're important and understand the rationale. Look, you've asked the question earlier, should we amend the Constitution? You have to know what the Constitution is, why it is what it is, before you can, I think, credibly say, well, we need to change something about it. People, I, I see people will say, well, should we increase the number of Supreme Court justices? Should we have 
uh, limits on the tenure of Supreme Court justices? Should we change the electoral, electoral cost? Yeah, maybe all those things are, are right and good and smart, but I don't think you're in a position to argue for them credibly and forcefully until you know the basics of how the country worked and, and why we had to amend the Constitution over time in the ways that we amended the Constitution. So I, I, think, I think there's never been a time where it's been more important. And one of the things that's gratifying to me that also gives me hope, and this is an indirect plug for my podcast, <laughs> is I feel like there is so much hunger to understand how the law works and how grand juries work and, and, and how punishment is meted out. And we're seeing that all through the lens of the special counsel investigation in the Southern District, and people are learning what a cooperating witness is through Michael Cohen, and they're learning about the vagaries of white-collar sentencing through Paul Manafort. Um, that's not a terrible thing. I don't, I don't think in a different time, my podcast, where it's just it's like a lawyer talking about stuff, answering questions and interviewing some interesting people, would have the listenership it has. I've, I've joked recently, I, I turn on the, there I am again, I turn on the television, and, and I keep on cable television, and, and all I see is people who used to work for me. <laughs> and you know them all, right? Former assistant U.S. attorney, Southern District of New York. You know, what does this mean? I mean, it's, it's great, it's, I think it's great for the public it, that, that they don't just want to hear, and I have no quarrel with, with journalists and pundits, but they want to hear from people who were in the practice of law, who understand how it works, and who have credibility and will explain the criminal justice system with all of its warts and its flaws. And that's great, because maybe there's some things that should be changed. Maybe there's some things that are different. But you can't know that, whether you're talking about the Constitution or a criminal statute or how bail is, is done, unless you know what the rules are now. Incredibly important. For inspiring Americans to learn about the Constitution, please join me in thanking Preet Bharara. Thank you. Thanks, Thank you. Today's episode was edited by Dave Stotts and produced by me, Tanea Tauber, and Jackie McDermott. If you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and tell your friends about it. And check out our companion podcast, We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate that's available wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber. Thank you.